At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we have Penn Gillette. He is world famous as part of the magic duo Penn & Teller. But today we're going to take a closer look at his writing. And I think like all good sleight of hand, we'll discover that his gift for writing has been there all along and contributes to everything he does. He's the author of 11 books, including two novels. His latest is the novel Random. Penn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I wanted to start with your early life. You were born in Massachusetts. Born in Western Massachusetts. You have to say that because people think Massachusetts is Boston, and they think that it's um, hip and intellectual, and you know, it's or it's Dorchester or it's tough. But there's this whole section of Western Massachusetts before you get further western, where it gets like Kerouac country, where it gets like uh, all rich people from New York live. There's this little section of dead fact towns that's just fentanyl a little more uh, rough and tumble right yeah it's really it's very funny but it feels it's massachusetts but it feels maybe a little more like west virginia like the and, old school patriots fans not this you know new, yeah well you know. i'm not a sports guy i don't know but yeah I, I i suppose from from context i suppose that's correct um okay. but it's not uh uh you know like when um spike lee is in do the right thing uh, I guess it's uh, John Savage walks in with like a like a knapsack and he's walking through and and Spike Lee says go back to Massachusetts. He's not talking about Western Mass. <laughs> okay, well I I know I have read, but you say you're you're a born skeptic, so you don't believe in God, you don't believe no. in magic, but you no. did always want to be a writer. Can you talk about the I early years? Did. I always did. Yeah, you know I uh, I always wanted to be I always wanted to be pretentious is what I mostly wanted to be. Failed. Uh, Failed. I, 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 I still try, but um, I wanted to be a writer. And uh, in uh, when all my other school fell away, um, I was a good student for a while. Then I was a terrible student, just didn't go to school, didn't really finish high school. But uh, I always enjoyed writing. You know, my my um, I, uh, my mom was a typing teacher and taught me to mm-hmm. type when I was uh, very young. You know. Eight or nine, and uh, I was always I was always typing and always mm-hmm. writing and always writing stories and yeah. Stuff. And I know you didn't you weren't born into some big Hollywood entertainment family. You broke no. into this under your own power. And I yeah. know you saw a show when you were eighteen. I, I don't know if I'll say the name right, but uh, the name was James Randi. 
Well, James Randi. And uh, that sort of uh, took you down this path of magic. Uh, yeah, kind of, sort of ish. You know, um, uh, there was first the negative before there was the positive. You know, um, I was a big fan of science, a very good science student, and um, I mean for Greenfield, uh, Massachusetts, and um, uh, I saw on uh, on TV. Uh, I think it was Kreskin. You know, one of these shysters, one of these really mm-hmm. bad people, doing a magic trick, uh, masquerading as a science experiment. I'm talking about ESP. And I really, really believed in that and thought, I will study more of this. And my parents, who were not wealthy, my dad was a jail guard, you know, um, uh, said, well, this is science. They bought me this little um, ESP kit. And uh, I tried to do all the experiments and reading minds and the pendulum stuff, the idiomatic movement and so on. And um, uh, then I was at the library, and uh, because of the blessing of the Dewey Decimal System, which no one remembers, um, right. juggling and magic are right together. And I had learned to juggle. I got to be a pretty good juggler. And I was looking over at the magic books. There were only two juggling books. So when you were in that section of the library, it wasn't much to do. I'd read both those books. Um, and there was a book by Dunninger, who was a mentalist in the 40s. And in that book was the um, description of how the person had done the trick that I believed was science. And my reaction was not measured. It was not sane. It was the reaction of an adolescent. You were angry. uh, Furious and embarrassed and Mm. humiliated and could not believe that adults were lying to children. And my grades went, I mean, it was that day my grades went from A to failing. That's funny. Because I just said nothing to do it, with it this. It reminds me of the day when I discovered professional wrestling was fake. It's funny. <laughs> if you go back and look at these professional wrestling videos from the 60s, it's just ridiculous. Uh-huh. And at least now they seem to have embraced the theater of it. You know, there's pyrotechnics and loud mm-hmm. music and stuff like that. It's a show now. And it mm-hmm. seems like that's sort of a turn maybe you you took with it. Yeah, very much so, except the anger was this was not dealing with anything showbiz. This was real supposed to be physics and science. And so I uh, hated uh, the sciences because they lied to children, and I hated magic, which I'd hated already. And then uh, almost simultaneously, I mean, now that I'm in my 60s simultaneously, but at the time probably six months or a year apart, uh, I read James Randi's book about uh, skepticism, and uh, Randi made it very clear, he became a mentor of mine, very good friend, very important person in my life, that you could do magic while telling the truth. You could mm-hmm. say, we're going to do tricks now. And then I met Teller, and Teller said something that seemed insane to me. He said that magic was essentially an intellectual art form, which is an insane thing to say. It's a greasy guy with a tux with a lot of birds torturing women in front of Mylar. What's intellectual about that? But um, with music... There's a visceral element, even poetry, dance, certainly. Um, comedy, there's, there's, a, there's an intellectual engagement. But magic has to have, or there's no trick, um, an intellectual engagement of this is the way the world is. This is the way this trick looks. Mm-hmm. There's the resolution of cognitive dissonance. And that happens at a very high-functioning level of intellect. And although magicians never dealt with that, because they always negated the very thing that's beautiful by saying, never mind, just take us on a magic journey. Here's a dream mm-hmm. I had, which is not the way magic should be watched. It should be watched with, you know this isn't possible. You know it's a trick. Let's play with that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, 
it's really, as I mean, to put it as, as pretentiously as possible, it is playful epistemology, right? Uh, epistemological study done very playfully. Yeah. And Teller and I uh, wanted to find out if we could do magic without insulting the intelligence of the audience, without being condescending, and being respectful and being honest. Yeah, and I can see how that crosses over into your writing, which I want to talk about sure. a bit later too. But I, I also, I read your description of the difference between a skeptic and a cynic, and I love that. The cynic is pessimistic, whereas a skeptic is really challenging and exploring for truth, yeah, and that well, leaves know, room for optimism, which you It's actually an emotional are. difference. Um, skepticism really deals with the facts, what happens, what is possible. And cynicism really deals with the emotion behind it. You know, if you talk to Bill Maher, and I, I use Bill Maher as an example because he refers to himself as a cynic. He says he's a cynic, so it's in no way disparaging to say that. Uh, he attributes the worst motives to everybody. He just assumes that anybody's doing something, they have the worst motive for doing that. So a politician is probably lying, probably lying to get money, probably lying to get power. Uh, a skeptic uh, doesn't decide on motive. A skeptic just decides um, what things can we prove, what things can we be sure of? What things should we doubt? Mm -hmm. And uh, those are very, very different emotionally. Yeah. I mean, Bill, he's probably getting to the right answer a lot faster about 65% of the time. Sure. And then he's going to get the wrong answer sure. a bit. But it's also the cost yeah. of that right answer gotten in the wrong way yeah. is enormous. Because um, I disagree profoundly because I think that of the seven and a half billion people who are on the planet, about seven and a half billion of them are really good. Mm -hmm. And they're really trying to do yeah, the best Yeah, you're missing out on, on all that. And I think that you can, um, your default setting that people probably have their heart in the right place, I think is provably more accurate. Now, being a cynic always makes you look kind of smarter and smugger, you know, just trying to rip you off. But you know, if you're talking about love and you're talking about opening up your heart uh guessing the stranger that you meet you know there's a there's a there's a there's a great thing that um mathematicians will say which is if you've never missed an air an airline flight you're arriving at the airport too early you know mm -hmm. that, that's time that's wasted and my son recently you know he uh he had uh, it's not worth going into, but he had gathered up um, a lot in, in a video game. He had gotten many rewards, some of them actually ending up being financial. So he had a couple hundred dollars worth of add-ons in a particular game. Like for winning was, like a Fortnite game or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. Although Fortnite, he finds repulsive. So one of the competitors to that. But he built up, which he worked hard for. He's, yeah. you know, he's 16, and if you can call working hard uh, playing a video game, he had done that. And someone had come along and um, offered him a, a deal of some sort, and he engaged in it. And all of that stuff was stolen from him. Mm. So about a year and a half of is working and saving money and putting it together. And he was a little bit despondent, you know. And I said to him, um, if you aren't badly ripped off every few years, you're not trusting people enough. You have to get ripped That's off. That's good. So you the are person, the eternal optimist. The person who is, has never been ripped off, has never been conned, hmm. is a person who's living too cold, too cold a life. Yeah, it's like the people who drive such hard bargains. They might get the best deal 
on the ones that they complete. But think of all the deals that were good deals. They, they never completed because they were... That zero-sum philosophy is, uh, is outdated. It, it's not accurate. Yeah. And it does not... It does not work for the good of everybody. You know, you want to have, I try to, in, in our whole career, 47 years of Penn and Teller, we have tried to follow a very strong rule, which is we will not sign a contract that we would not sign both sides of. Yeah. When we go in to play a theater, we really want the promoter to make a ton of money. Everybody should walk away happy from, from a successful... Everybody, successful Yeah, the yeah. idea that you're supposed to be taking someone for a ride, yeah. that it's predatory, is just, uh, and more well, it's very short-sighted. No short-sighted, one's going to want to do the next deal with you. Not accurate. Yeah, it's just not accurate. Most people are just trying to do the right thing, and I really believe that. And I know that at a time when our, our country's been rip, ripped apart, and when um, it's possible that democracy is gone, uh, you really sound yeah. like a psychopath to say that things are good. But people are good. Things aren't. I love people who live outside the law. Bob Dylan, you know, the the bard of Minnesota wrote, to live outside the law, you must be honest. And I've always been fascinated, uh, you know, in, in music, Daniel Johnson or half Japanese, in music, Sun Ra, you know, David Allen Coe, the people who are really, really out on the edges, I'm always fascinated by. In my deep dive on Penn Jillette, I, I made a bunch of notes and I've sort of organized them here. One is listed under habits, and you have some fascinating habits, including taking a scalding hot bath with... Mm-hmm. But there's one other I wanted to ask you I found, found even more interesting. You surround yourself with things for which you feel you have no natural gift, like oh, yeah, music yeah. and art. So Bob Dylan music and artwork. Is this yeah, a way well, of strengthening your resolve in some way? I have, and I've been studied for this at the University of Chicago, did extensive studies. I have um, um, breathtakingly bad uh, visual memory. Um, really bad. Uh, it's not face blindness. Um, which is a whole separate thing, but it's very, very bad visual memory, and I cannot rotate objects in space. So they were really interested in my IQ test <laughs> because uh, I did fairly well on verbal and uh, pattern and recall and mathematics. But when it came to those things like if you rotate this, uh, you know, hexagon in space, what does it look like from this angle? Can't do it. If you're talking about putting stuff in a trunk, no no idea. I've talked about Tetris. No way I can rotate those things and do it. And um, I don't recognize people that I meet. I don't recognize places that I've been. So art, visual art, is very hard for me. So um, Andy Warhol or Salvador Dali, that you can describe what the painting means, I do pretty well at. But when you get to stuff that is abstract or even representational, mm-hmm. uh, I have real trouble with it. So I have friends who are artists, and I surround myself with their work. My my house is full of art because I look at it to try to get it in there. Because I have poor visual memories, not that I have none. So whereas you could look at a, an image in a painting for maybe... 10 seconds and carry that with you in your heart, I probably got to do two hours. So I I have it all around me. Now music, I have no problem with music that has a verbal component. Uh, So Bob Dylan is very easy for me. Bob Dylan easy, stones hard. Because the stones are more textures. 
and uh, less intellectual content in the lyrics. And Derek, yeah, Dylan's famous for the lyrics. You know, Dylan's also an artist. You could, I do. You could I have, have some, well, I have several of. Have some, oh yeah, beautiful watercolors and other. Paintings. I have. I have yeah. some of the watercolors. Good. I have some of Dylan's. I have uh, a lot of Dylan stuff. So, I have, I have uh, <laughs> one as well. I have Man on the Bridge. I think it's from the Drawn Blank series. Yeah, I got one's from Drawing Blank too. I have yeah. the the one with the hot tub and the women around it. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, 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 in order to do that, in order to get more in touch with the music music, um, the pure music form, one of the pure music forms uh, is uh, bebop jazz. So I started studying bebop jazz when I was 45 and started playing upright bass. And I am now a tolerable uh, upright bass player. Uh, admit, you're, jazz. you're pushing yourself in all yeah, these directions. Yeah, I can play. So I, before every show in uh, in uh, Vegas, before the Penn and Teller show, yeah. there's an hour of bebop jazz and I play bass. Oh, that's amazing. So I've, been, I've, I've gotten myself to be a good enough uh, jazz player that if I wanted to cut three zeros off my income, I could be a full-time jazz musician. There we go. I'm wondering about your gifts in terms of introvert and extrovert. I think the benefits of being an extrovert are pretty clear, and I've also seen lots of literature on the benefits of being an introvert, you know, the power of silence. And most of the writers we have on this show are naturally more introverted. I'm naturally more introverted. You embrace writing, which is sort of a solitary thing, but you also have this big uh, entertainment career where, where you command a stage. Do you think of yourself as more introverted or, or extroverted? I, I don't know if I I, uh, I, I, I think in, in those kinds of terms. You know, there's a thing in, um, in Carney, in ripoffs, called uh, cold reading. And uh, there's a lot of ways to do a cold reading. It's fortune telling. And um, one of the ways to do a cold reading is to um, say things and take them back. You know, as I look at you, I see you as a child, and you are surrounded by other children, yet you somehow feel alone. You've always been ambitious, but you don't quite feel you've filled your full potential. You feel you could do more. You are a loving, giving person, but you're also guarded in love. You're just saying things and taking them back. And I believe that when people say, I'm introverted, but I'm also this, it's a little bit of that. You know, I... um, I think like everybody, I go back and forth. You know, I, I really, really enjoy, you know, writing a novel, like writing random, which I get to write like a real book. My other 10 books, I wrote in stolen moments, you know, just uh, my other friends who are authors, you know, um, Neil Gaiman and, and Nicholson Baker and uh, Elizabeth McCracken. I have a bunch of buddies who are, who are authors and I talk with them about writing and they just, they get to write. You know, they, they sit down, they have a place they write, they have a cup of tea. But I would be like, you know, on a bus from the airport to Atlantic City trying to finish up a chapter yeah. on my laptop. But during the um, shutdown, um, I was able to actually be a writer. I was able to actually get up and a few solid make hours a cup on of tea. End. Yeah. And, and it was uh, it was really wonderful. So writing this book was a was a very different experience. Did you feel that took any of the energy out of it? You, there are stories of you know Grisham on his first book was a practicing attorney, so he mm-hmm. was writing on the train rides and things yeah. like that. And I know some people try to write in shorter bursts. Like I think you, mm-hmm. yours was like a twenty seven minute burst or something minutes. like that, right? I write twenty seven minutes and that maybe that brings some energy to it. Or well, I think you just you just kind of answered it. You can uh, you can artificially bring that about, but it was kind of nice to be able to. Um, uh, to think about the book uh, for a larger percentage of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you'd always have it running in the background, but to have it in the foreground. I mean, I've been thinking about this book for um, for 30 years, 
and uh, I was really fascinated with the with the intellectual ideas. But I, yeah. I I do do a um, uh, it's a detective story, and it is I hope funny. But um, the intellectual ideas are what really uh, propelled me into it. Oh, it's totally fat. And I want to get to that the the random idea of mm-hmm. of uh, taking some doubt out of your yeah out of your decision making, like to you know that the uh, the amount of stalling as you sort of make up your mind on a fifty one forty nine percent decision. Mm-hmm. But so we've covered some habits. Your beliefs that I wanted to touch base on as well. You are a staunch defender of the First Amendment. And, uh, yeah, uh, I think we're maybe not at an all-time rough for the First Amendment it's lovers, rough, but there's some rough, headwinds for sure. It's a rough sure. time, and um, I, I had a good friend of mine, uh, Paul Provenza, who I made a movie called The Aristocrats with, and he's a wonderful comic, Provenza. Uh, Provenza uh, texted me about, well, you'll be able to figure out when, um, and said, do we have to defend Alex Jones? Do we have to defend Alex Jones? Do we have to defend Alex Jones? And I said, not yet, because uh, what he's being uh, tried for is a lying about that. <sighs> it's really hard. Um, when well, I, I think most comedians, most book writers really embrace the First Amendment. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, that is a big thing, particularly in comedy. I do. Very much so. But um, uh, it, is not, it is not an intellectual belief that is without heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Because uh, well, that's the whole the, point of it, though, right? It's yeah, the, it is, the it speech is. we hate that we defend. Absolutely, I, I have no problem. Uh, I mean, um, Westboro Baptist Church was just heaven for me. You know, they protest soldiers' funerals. They used horrible um, uh, slurs against people. They spoke religion and I just love they were over in their area and then other people I mean I remember them holding a sign about uh, you know using the F word for gays and how God hates them and then another guy next to him with a sign that says this guy's an asshole and that sums up all freedom of speech to me it was just beautiful but um, something happened and um, I don't understand it at all Um, there's a book that I, I recommend uh, very strongly, uh, besides random. Um, my friend Jonathan Rausch wrote a book called The uh, the Constitution of Ideas. Constitution of Knowledge. Constitution okay. of Knowledge, which um, he's a hardcore free speech guy who is actually writing about Twitter and the internet. And you know, when I was talking, I remember there was a lecture at MIT that we were giving, um, and uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and we were um, obviously knowing uh, Rob Pike and the guys at Bell Labs had already written Unix and uh, things were starting to be able to talk to each other. And we kind of postulated the, very badly, but some idea of how the internet would, would develop. And uh, I thought, this is just utopia. This is free speech to the nth degree because, uh, you know, Everybody will have their say, mm-hmm. and the uh, the solution to bad speech is more speech. There'll be almost infinite speech, and it'll all be canceling each other out. It'll be, just be beautiful. And what never crossed my mind, never crossed my mind, was that there would be um, there there would be al- algorithms that would monetize uh, outrage and hate. And once you found a way to monetize outrage and hate. Um, Everything becomes really complicated. But it, so I it, still it amplifies believe in free the speech. Worst, I know, but the, exactly. But these platforms amplify the worst elements of it, and that 
sort of subsumes the whole whole thing. It's, uh, you know, it used to be if you were like a racist in Boston and you went to your friends and started spouting your racist nonsense, what's wrong with you, you know? They kind of... But now that guy uh, can leave the bar with his friends. Mm-hmm. He can go home and he can actually be in touch with the Grand Wizard within 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that kind of tribalism... When you uh, take geography out of tribalism, which gives you a random sampling in your geography with a canceling thing, when you take that out, when you let the QAnon people who are in Connecticut talk to the QAnon people who are in Arizona Mm -hmm. without the geography around them and people yeah. going, what, what's yeah, wrong like with in you? In the real town square, that, that gets pushed out. But in the virtual town square, it exists and it connects with the other sort of fringe of the other town square and, and the town uh, over. And, uh, you know, the um, uh, the 24-hour news cycle where people go, this nut just said this. Well, that's, I mean, the, the ratings-driven news, uh, news for profit is a is a difficult thing. That's why I love the, the fragmenting of it. And if you, you can get your news on YouTube now. And yeah. uh, you don't have to go to these other things. But you can also make sure that you uh, uh, you can get your facts from you, places. You, you've got to try and get, you got to get your news from ten different places, and then yeah. and be a skeptic and try or, and get there. Or you have got to. Uh, I, I'm ho- you know this is what well you'll you'll see this in the uh, in the uh, uh, Constitution of Knowledge. Um, the amazing thing is that all of this noise and um, dystopia. Uh, there is Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is fascinating because Wikipedia is the way it's supposed to work. I mean, there's one page for Obama. There's not a zillion pages that all give different facts. There's one page, and it is being policed, and it's being policed somewhat by the people on it, but there's also people who are, are paid to police that. And uh, it's really interesting how that's our, our real goal I mean, if you wanted to have a real sloppy goal, is you want our society to look more like Wikipedia and less like Twitter. Yeah. So on your process, I had a quick story I want to tell you about your that made me think of your writing process. I was at this event with a mentalist, and this guy was blowing everyone's mind with the kind of tricks where, you know, the queen of hearts and someone would sign it, and then it'd wind up in someone's wallet on the other side of the room, mm-hmm. and we were all just like, my God. So I went over... And I was right in front. I was like, he's not going to get one past me. I'm going to, if he directs my attention there, I'm going to be looking all around it. I'm going to watch both hands the whole time. Mm-hmm. He won't fool me. And you know what? It didn't matter. He still completely mm-hmm. befuddled me the whole time. He just had the entire audience by a string. And I was wondering with your writing, if the development of the arc of a magic trick as you take the audience through it is similar to writing, you know, a plot twist in a novel. Well, the real most important skill in magic, and I will say that my partner Teller has this uh, has this the best of anybody uh, living. Um, what it really comes down to is empathy, and um, that's the most important thing in magic. You have to be able to be another person, and uh, that's really hard when you know the secret of magic. It's of a trick. I mean, not not a, there's not a universal secret of magic. When you know the the secret to a trick, to be able to put yourself into that seat without knowing that secret and know what the person's thinking, is uh, is what you practice all the time in magic. So what you're seeing 
Uh, you're using um, misdirection the way lay people use it, which is uh, not the way magicians use it. The way lay people use it is it's almost synonymous with distraction. Like, hey, look there, you do something sneaky over here. That's usually uh, never used in magic. Um, misdirection is actually um, giving someone a whole chain of thought that they can go on where the little lie covers the big lie. So you're what's called closing doors. So when you go in there knowing that you're going to be watching everywhere, uh, the magician knows that's what you're doing and is already a step ahead of you and giving you stuff to worry about. And the very fact that that's what you're worrying about, I'm going to be looking over here, looking over there, allows you to be led. Mm -hmm. When you're writing a uh, a book, it is... It's the same kind of thought. It's the same kind of empathy. You want to make sure when you've got a big surprise coming that you can anticipate how the audience is thinking, what they're feeling, where they're going, where the turn is. And you've got to be thinking of how you, um, how you teach them things mm -hmm. that they don't know they're being taught. You know, like you never, uh, you can't say never because there are situations where you want to do this, but if I point out that my hand is empty it's not nearly as strong as if I uh, if I pick something up and then you know my hands empty um, uh, which is the purpose of the magic wand of course when you're holding a magic wand he's holding that magic wand there's nothing else in his hand well the reason you're holding a magic wand is so you can hold something else in your hand and it looks natural I mean um, so you're dealing with a lot of the same uh, same techniques of how do you teach people what you want them to know about this world without telling them you're teaching them that? And how do you um, lead them in a certain direction while they think they're going there themselves? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's all, when you come right down to it, it's all, you know, it's all storytelling. Yeah. And uh, magic just has that other aspect of the storytelling that you're telling a story that's happening in real time with the, and Teller coined this phrase, and I think it's brilliant, with the unwilling suspension of disbelief. And <clears throat> that's what separates magic from other theater. Uh, Shakespeare, you know, you just go, we're on an island now. We just got shipwrecked on an island now. And the audience goes, okay. And then you go, and that guy you saw in a deodorant commercial, He's now king. And you go, okay, that's the willing suspension of disbelief. With magic, you go, uh, I have a perfectly ordinary deck of cards. Right, you've got a skeptical audience. And They're the audience to, goes, yeah. no fucking way. Yeah. No. And then you've got to close all those doors and show them it's that way. Yeah. So that where the, where the um, suspension of disbelief comes is, is really interesting in magic. Okay. A couple other quick process questions. Um, as as listeners of the show know, I usually am drinking a cocktail with our with our guests. You mm -hmm. don't drink, but do you drink coffee when you write or uh, decaffeinated? Okay. Uh, I'm really, you know, I'm 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 ridiculous. I'm that guy. Mm -hmm. Never a sip of alcohol in my life. Never a recreational drug. Uh, I don't smoke. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't do caffeine. I was once said, uh, you know, I live in Vegas, which is, you know maggoty with mormons mm -hmm. and you know my uh 
I know a lot of people who are Mormon. They go, you know, Penn, you're a perfect Mormon. And I go, yeah, except for that no God thing. That's the only place I fall down on the Mormonism. I'm fine with multiple wives. It's the no God thing <laughs> right that you fall down on. All right, and to close out the show, we do a quick lightning round of oh, questions. Okay. So these are all just sort of fun, quick. I'll sit up straight. Yes. Thank you. Favorite book as a kid, 14 years old or younger? Favorite book as a kid, 14 years old or longer, Catcher in the Rye. Good, good choice. Favorite couple of shows you've watched recently that you'd recommend to the listeners? Uh, uh, Better Call Saul. Awesome. Uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, Perpetual Grace Limited. Okay. Best act now in Vegas other than your own? Uh, well, I'm going to say two. Piff the Magic Dragon and Mac King. Okay. Uh, books you're reading now? Books I'm reading now. I'm reading a lot of Spanish, beginner Spanish books. Um, I'm reading, um, I think it just came out or it's going to come out in a few weeks, but Lawrence Krauss' um, Known Unknowns, which is a great science book. Um, also reading a book, I don't remember the author, called um, You're Not Listening. To, I usually read five books at a time in the bathtub at night. Um, You're Not Listening to Me, which is a book on the science of uh, listening during conversations. Uh, I'm reading a book, I can't remember the name of it, Smoking Diaries, which is a playwright who writes a stream of consciousness stuff in his, uh, he's in his 60s, and I'm reading um, a book of poems by Robert Frost. Wow, you're very well read. The next question I usually ask to writers, because even the, the biggest writers were once unknown and would go out and do a book signing event and one person would show up or nobody would show up, but with you, you're a big star, so that doesn't happen, but Similar experience in your early days of magic, worst sort of early show. We had in our contracts that there had to be more than eight people in the audience uh, because we once did a show in Atlanta for three people. Uh, it, was, it was a theater that sat about 400, and there were three people in the audience, which means because we use audience uh, participation, each person was on stage four times. <laughs> Amazing. Hard to believe. Now, what year was that then? Uh, Mid-70s or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been about 76, yeah. 77, yeah. Okay, last question. One piece of good advice for the listeners on anything. It could be writing, magic, life. Uh, on writing, I'll give you a piece of advice. Um, don't finish your sentence and don't finish your word. Set an alarm for everything you're doing. When that alarm goes off, take your fingers off the keyboard. If rehearsing, walk away. Don't finish saying your line. Don't finish typing the word. Don't finish the sentence. If you finish uh, your work session on a cadence where you feel satisfied, your mind will stop working on that, and the next time you start fresh. If you start with a stone, in, if you if you end with a stone in your shoe, I gotta finish that pair. Okay, but I'm gonna leave. But I gotta fit. Your subconscious will keep working on that, and the next time you work, you'll have another 15 minutes all done. That's, That's what you don't have to work for. It just gets done in the background. It's back processing. It's it's money for nothing. It's chicks for free. <laughs> Great advice. Well, Penn, it was a, a real pleasure. Thanks for well, coming thank on. thank you. Pleasure talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.
Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.